1: This week on P.A. Books, Jeremy Beer, author of Oscar Charleston. Jeremy Beer, author of Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player. You say in the book that he's one of the greatest athletes in American history. Why is he forgotten? Famous fleeting,
0: and Oscar has certainly proved that. Um, The context is really important in answering that question. Virtually every player who played his entire career in the Negro Leagues, with the exception of Josh Gibson, cool Papa Bell to some extent, and Buck O'Neill, who had the luck to be discovered by Ken Burns and became the grand old man of black baseball, uh, all of them have been forgotten, actually. There were so many great athletes and so many great players uh, in the Negro League. So the first answer is he's just one of many of these players who have been forgotten. But there are some other reasons that are unique to Oscar. Uh, one is he died young in 1954 uh, at the age of 57 years old. He left no descendants, so there has been no one to tend his flame. Um, his city, Indianapolis, where he was born and raised, has not really claimed him as a, as a son of the city. Um, and a lot of that has to do with his race, for sure. And then the last reason, which also has to do with race and the complicated legacy of the Negro Leagues, is that from about the time he died until the late 1970s or so, almost no one uh, showed an interest in the history of the Negro Leagues outside, um, still some in the black press, uh, older columnists who, who really wanted to make sure the history of the Leagues hadn't been forgotten. But um, it, was a, it was a painful legacy. That no one was incentivized to try to remember it. Um, it was painful for everyone. And so we have a generation where almost no work was done on the Negro Leagues, and that was a time when a lot of the people who had played with Oscar died as well, or um, just became a lot older. And um, the trail was lost. It went cold. So those would be some of the reasons why, as good as he was, he has been forgotten. How did you find out about him? Well, I found out about him through a man named Bill James, uh, whom some people will know. If you've seen the movie Moneyball, he's shown briefly in, in the film as, a, as an inspiration for Brad Pitt's character, Billy Beam. He's the father of modern sabermetrics or analytics uh, that have sort of swept uh, the sports world in the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, James, uh, besides being a numbers man, is a great historian, uh, a great historian of the game of baseball. And he published a list of his top 100 players of all time hmm, about 18 years ago now, I think. And I was reading that list. This was a little bit more than a decade ago. And number one was Babe Ruth, whom I had heard of. (laughs) And I was a big baseball fan, so I expected to have heard of everybody on this list. Uh, Number two was Honus Wagner, uh, the great Pittsburgh Pirates shortstop, okay. Uh, Number three was Willie Mays. Again, everybody's heard of Willie Mays. And number four was a man named Oscar Charleston. And I had never heard of him. I couldn't believe that it would be possible that one of the top four greatest players of all time in any sport in America I wouldn't have heard of. And so that really interested me and intrigued me, and it it sent me down this path to trying to figure out who he was uh, and why he'd been forgotten. How much is written about him? Uh, Well, until this book, um, not a whole lot. And what there is uh, online, if, if someone were to Google his name today, is not especially reliable. Um, There had been people who had worked on Charleston in the past and written a few uh, essays and articles about him, Uh, some of them quite good. But at the same time, he had been misremembered and misrepresented in the literature of the Negro Leagues to some extent. Uh, He had gotten um, a false reputation in a number of ways. So there was a lot of mythology about him out there and still is, uh, you could tell that the telephone game had been played from one writer to another, to this source, to that source, and um, it, things have gotten garbled. So while there are a few few essays and articles out there about him, uh, not much, and even those
1: would have some some mistakes in them. So if you found yourself on an elevator with somebody and they said, well, who is this Oscar Charles? And you got a, a, a short time the to get the pitch. point across. Yeah, yeah. What is it for about him?
0: <laughs> uh, he's he was the greatest all-around player in Negro Leagues history uh, by the consensus opinion of those who saw him play. Uh, That's that's the quick, very quick summary. But really what I would say is, and besides that, um, he may have the greatest overall resume of any player ever to play the game, because not only was he a great, great player, but he was also voted the best manager in Negro Leagues history by one poll of ex-players taken 20 or so years ago. And, He was a pioneering scout uh, who helped uh, Branch Rickey integrate uh, Major League Baseball and I think was probably the first uh, African-American to be paid to scout for a National League or American League team.
1: You say in here, in 1919, the Chicago Defender newspaper said that Charleston was the greatest player in the world. He has no superior, even outclassing the great Ty Cobb. How is it possible then in the, the teens and 20s to compare the quality of baseball in the, the Negro leagues to the white leagues? That's a great question. And
0: I, I think I, if I knew this before I started this book, I only knew it vaguely. And I think a lot of people don't know that black teams played white teams in exhibition contests all the time, uh, all throughout the 20th century, uh, and I'm sure before. So it was possible to directly compare them when he went and saw them play. (laughs) Uh, Charleston never played against Ty Cobb, uh, even though he played against teams of Detroit Tigers players playing in in postseason exhibition contests, really good players um, like Bobby Veach and Harry Heilman and people like that, guys who are in the Hall of Fame. Cobb would not play in those contests for uh, probably reasons uh, related to race, but uh, Charleston played against Lou Gehrig in New York. He played against um, Bob and Irish Musial, famous Yankees players in 1921 in California. Um, he played against Rogers Hornsby late in Hornsby's career. Uh, he played against Bob Feller. These are all major league players.
1: You uh, describe so. him at a, uh, batting in a game against Walter Johnson. Yes. At least that's,
0: I couldn't find that box score, but that was attested to by several witnesses. Uh, and Lefty Grove is another player, Philadelphia athletics pitcher, Lefty Grove. So Charleston and other Negro Leagues players um, were able to test themselves against white competition frequently. Um, and we have, in fact, a lot of those box scores today. Um, there are really quite good statistics on how they fared. And Charleston, in particular, um, fared tremendously well against white major league competition. In fact, he did better than he did against Negro Leagues competition. So. Um, That writer in 1919, um, he knew what he was talking about, probably. He had seen some of these contests, and of course he'd see white teams play each other as well as as, uh, Negro Negro League's teams play against each other. So I think you could come to pretty fair conclusions from that. It wasn't just speculation.
1: Were Negro League games reported
0: on in white newspapers? They were, yes, not as extensively as they were in the black press. So the Chicago Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier are pretty much the leading uh, newspapers of record for the Negro Leagues throughout the league's existence. Uh, There are a number of other uh, black newspapers as well that cover them, but those are the two leading ones. They're really the national newspapers. But yes, the Indianapolis Star covered uh, games played by the ABCs, the Indianapolis ABCs, where Oscar played. Uh, Various Pittsburgh newspapers covered games played by the Homestead Grays and the Pittsburgh Crawfords the two great Negro Leagues teams in Pittsburgh. Um, so, yes, it wasn't uncommon. It wasn't as extensive. Uh, you were unlikely to get a photo of a Negro Leagues player in, in a white newspaper, although that did happen. But, um, yes, they were covered. Um, and not only when they played white teams, although that would be the the primary reason why they were covered. What was
1: the heyday of the Negro Leagues? Uh,
0: next year is the 100th anniversary of the um, formal launch of the first formal uh, Negro League, the Negro National League, uh, was formed in 1920 by a man named Rube Foster, who owned the Chicago American Giants. Um, I would say 1920 would be conventionally marked as the beginning of their heyday, if you want to put it that way, although they were going quite well in the teens as well. So if you wanted to go back into the mid to early teens, uh, and then until basically 1947, when Jackie Robinson debuts with the Brooklyn Dodgers, and almost immediately after that happens, the leagues start to collapse. Uh, their fan base is cut dramatically. Um, African-American fans flock to the Dodgers. And uh, the Negro Leagues take on a new symbolic significance, uh, that they, uh, a less positive symbolic significance than they had had before, which was very positive. So, yes, the mid-teens till the late 1940s, uh, the Negro Leagues are very much in their heyday.
1: During their heyday, if you had gone to a game in Indianapolis or mm-hmm. or to see the Homestead Greys or the Pittsburgh Crawfords, what, what would the experience have been like? That's a that's a good question. Like what, what kind of stadium would they yeah. play in? What kind of crowds did they draw? Right.
0: So um, they drew crowds, especially in the twenties before the Great Depression made it hard for everybody. Uh, it was not uncommon if you went to a Sunday doubleheader. Sunday was a great day of baseball in the Negro leagues and in in the white major leagues. Uh, there might be a crowd of 10,000 or 15,000 people in, in a major city, a city like Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. Um, the stadium in Pittsburgh would likely be Forbes Field where the Pittsburgh Pirates played. Uh, that was where the, the Grays played their home games. In Philadelphia, it would likely be um, a ballpark at 44th and Parkside. It didn't seem to have a real name. It was called 44th and Parkside. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes though in Shibe Park as well, uh, you might see a game, especially if it was a Sunday doubleheader. Um, 90% or so I would estimate of the fans would be African-American, but the rest would be white. It was not uncommon for there to be sometimes a lot of white fans at a game, even between two uh, black teams. It would be a very uh, dynamic crowd, more like a football crowd today than maybe you'd think of as a conventional baseball crowd today. On their feet, yelling, occasionally throwing things, (laughs) uh, giving money to players. It was common after a home run to shower. A player with money, Um, the game would be stopped while someone like Charleston picked up a bunch of uh, coins on the field or took dollar bills out of a fence behind home plate. Um, So, and there'd be a lot of betting in the crowd, a lot of gambling going on in the crowd as well. So, it'd be a really, I think, dynamic experience, and also it would be at least an hour shorter than today's baseball (laughs)
1: games. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to read you something from your book. You say the game itself was fast and rough, even violent. Fights Mm -hmm. between players. And between players and umpires were not at all uncommon. Runners slid into bases high and hard. Fielders made sure base runners knew they had been tagged. Pitchers had no compunction about establishing their ownership of the plate. If a batter hit uh, a pitcher hard in his first two at-bats, he could be expected to be knocked down on his third perhaps more than once. You also talk about a lot of times where people took swings at umpires.
0: Yeah, it was just a totally different game, as that, as that passage indicates. It was, um, it was a totally different society in many ways, too. Um, it was a very violent game compared to now. Um, yeah, physical contact, uh, spiking players coming into a base, throwing at players, if you were a pitcher. Just all of that wasn't uncommon, and it meant that fights weren't uncommon as well. Um, especially in the Negro Leagues, where there was really never a really strong league Uh, That controlled things, that could fine players and it would make it stick, or ban players and make it stick. Um, umpires especially were at risk of of violence to their person, like hazardous duty. It was very (laughs) hazardous duty, uh, which is why, in fact, uh, not um, white, there were a lot of white umpires in the black game, uh, in part because they were protected by their race. To to slug a white umpire obviously was to commit a greater sort of social. uh, violation than it would have been a black umpire. Uh, but, uh, umpires took to the habit, some of them, of, of carrying pistols in their uniforms. Uh, and, because um, they were, it was, it could be frightening. I mean, uh, there were a couple of not good men in the Negro Leagues, uh, who waylaid umpires after games, you know, attacked them with baseball bats and that kind of thing. So, um, it was violent, but we need to keep in, in, in mind the context, overall context of American society. Just, you know, people got in fights and bars in the 1920s and 1930s and teens like they don't so much today. Uh, it just, there was just more fighting. There was um, somebody counted up all the violent incidents in, in white Major League Baseball in some, some of the, one year in the late teens, and it was like 1,500 or something, you know, fights. I mean, just an, an incredible amount. So, um, yes, if you went to a game uh, in, the, in the teens, 20s, 30s, it was not unlikely you would see a, a brawl on the field, <laughs> and it could involve an umpire, uh, and sometimes Oscar was involved in those brawls. Were the rules of the game essentially the
1: same as they are today?
0: Yeah, at the time that Oscar played, they would have been basically all the same. Um, the major change, <clears throat> two major changes, one a rule change, one a practice change. One was the spitball was outlawed uh, early on in Oscar's career, which started in 1915, um, and pitchers who had been using it were allowed they were grandfathered in they could continue to use it but that made things easier on batters uh, not to be able to slime up a baseball and make it go all sorts of crazy directions as it came to home plate and the second practice was just getting rid of old baseballs so it used to be uh, that um, a baseball might be pretty misshapen scuffed up and and almost dark black by the time you get to the sixth or seventh or eighth inning Um, eventually for safety reasons Uh, that practice was stopped, new baseballs were used more often, and again, that made it easier for hitters. It was one reason why um, home runs began to explode in the early 1920s.
1: Did the Negro Leagues have championships or like uh, their equivalent of the World Series or organized leagues, or was it Mm -hmm. kind of individual teams? So sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. So it depended on
0: a lot of factors, uh, the main one of which was, were there good uh, functioning leagues in place? Uh, The Negro Leagues never just had, like, a National League and an American League, and that's just the way it's been for 100 years, as we know it in today's Major League Baseball. Um, Leagues kind of came and went. Uh, The Negro National League in 1920. uh, The Eastern Colored League started in 1924. Uh, There's a Negro American League later on, which incorporates Western and Midwestern teams, um, and several other leagues. So leagues were uh, the big problem, one of the big problems, in, in Negro Leagues baseball was the undercapitalization of, of the leagues themselves and of the teams in those leagues. There just wasn't much margin for error. And then you throw in the Great Depression, uh, which happened sort of right in the middle of all this, and that made it very hard for leagues to operate. So sometimes there was a Negro Leagues World Series between uh, a champion from the Negro American League versus the Negro National League. Uh, sometimes there would be a World Series within a league, like the two different divisions or the first half winner versus the second half winner and sometimes there wasn't one at all. So some Negro Leagues championships are more like college football championships used to be, sort of by consensus, the 12-0 Penn State team is the national champion, right? Um, that's sort of how championships work sometimes in the Negro Leagues.
1: Were the owners of the teams white or
0: black? Mostly black. Not entirely. And that's an interesting story in and of itself. Um, most of the black owners in the Negro Leagues ha- got access to capital through means that were not entirely legal. <laughs> uh, Gus Greenlee, for instance, the owner of the Pittsburgh Crawfords, uh, was considered the numbers uh, king of Pittsburgh. Uh, he ran the illegal street lottery in Pittsburgh, uh, which was very popular and very profitable. And that was how he was able to capitalize um, the Pittsburgh Crawfords, and he, and he probably ran his profits from the lottery through the Crawfords. It was a, it was a beneficial mm-hmm. thing for him. Uh, And he wasn't the only one. Uh, James Semler and uh, Alex Pompez in New York, I believe, were also both involved in the numbers lottery. And there were others as well. Uh, If you weren't, if you didn't have that kind of (laughs) extra legal funding, Mm -hmm. often you had a white backer, um, a co-owner or at least someone who was like the major investor in the team. Uh, That was not uncommon at all. And there was a lot of complaining about that in the black press because, um, these often weren't great characters, and they, uh, the press didn't feel like they had uh, the race's best interest in mind, and that's almost certainly true. Uh, the Kansas City Monarchs, it's worth mentioning, were owned by uh, two white men, J.L. Wilkinson and Tom Baird. Uh, Wilkinson is in the Hall of Fame today, and probably deservedly so, and um, I think most accounts are that he was a, a good man. Um, Baird, ironically, uh, as we just discovered a few years ago, uh, was a member of the Ku Klux Klan uh, so there were ironies and complexities about all of that that are hard to understand uh, but um, yes it was it was a complex situation ownership in the Negro leagues.
1: Could a player make a living being a ball player?
0: yeah he really could it turns out, and this is something else that I found surprising um, at least during the six months of the year they were playing um, the average Negro Leagues player made considerably more than the average white worker in America. We'd be talking the 20s and, and through the Depression, I believe, um, and considerably more uh, um, than the average black worker, of course. So yes, the money was pretty good. Um, it was not close to major league levels even at the time, uh, and, and major league levels at the time were not so high that most players didn't need to get off-season jobs. But it was pretty good. It was pretty good. And then you would make more money playing in exhibition contests uh, where the gate might just be split between the players and the promoter. Uh, and then players like Oscar made yet more by going to Cuba uh, in the off season and playing winter ball. So someone like Charleston did pretty well, actually, by the standards of the time. Not as well as he should have done had he been allowed to play in uh, the white major leagues. But he did pretty well for himself.
1: Well, you do have a, a sentence that, uh, well, there's one year, uh, 29 to 30 winter season, he opted not to go to Cuba, and he stayed in Philadelphia and worked probably as a baggage handler. Right. And then you have another time when he's working as a chauffeur. So he's right. at the top of his game and yet right. working as a chauffeur or a baggage handler in the off season. Right.
0: Yes. So certainly while he was in his prime, I mean, for almost 10, at least 10 years straight, he played baseball year round. Uh America, your, your, your regular season in the Negro Leagues, postseason exhibition contests against often white major league teams, which could really bring in some money. Then you go down to Cuba and play for three months or so down there, come back, maybe get a month break, and you're on to spring training. He did that, I think, for as long as his body allowed. Uh, he, baseball was his life at Charleston. He wasn't alone in this. Um, but as you point out, at the very end of the 20s and then into the 30s, he stopped playing winter ball. Uh, he had made pretty good money, was continuing to make good money, and I think his body just wouldn't allow him to continue to do that. But he would take uh, off-season jobs, and baggage handler for the Pennsylvania Railroad is one of the principal jobs that he had.
1: Well, uh, we haven't really talked about him a whole lot. When did right. people start noticing that he was
0: a pretty good ball player? In the Philippines, in, uh, <laughs> in uh, 1913 or, or 1914. Um, Oscar... Lied his way into the army at age 15, uh, either forging uh, one of his parents' signatures or maybe he convinced one of them to sign the documents. Um, You're supposed to be 18 years old, of course. He was 15, and this was in 1912. Uh, He was assigned to the 25th uh, Infantry, uh, 24th Infantry, excuse me, and was shipped to the Philippines. And that's where his professional baseball career, oddly, began. Uh, There was a league down there called the Manila League, which would be roughly equivalent to like a single a level league today and but it was semi-pro uh the men got paid for playing there were only four teams uh the army the navy uh an all filipino team so native filipinos and then the 24th infantry uh entered the league in 1913 1914 uh, and charleston was first noticed there he burst onto the scene he was a great pitcher uh he was starting to become a great fielder. He still wasn't a fantastic batter. But that's when he first got recognized. Uh, In fact, he was on the same team in the Philippines as another future Hall of Famer named Bullet Joe Rogan, who was another great um, Negro Leagues player, a two-way player who was sort of like Babe Ruth, as a great pitcher and a great hitter. So that's when he was first recognized. Then he comes, uh, gets out of the Army, comes back to Indianapolis, signs with the Indianapolis ABCs in 1915, And over the course of two or three years, he starts to make a name for himself here in the United States. Uh, What were his skills? What was he best at? He was great at everything. (laughs) That was his unique calling card. Um, I like to say he was Willie Mays, before Willie Mays. Um, People might remember uh, Barry Bonds, how he was good at everything, um, even before he got the extra chemical assistance. Um, Charleston was what would be called today a five-tool player. He could hit. He was a great sort of batting average sort of player. He could hit for power, hit a lot of home runs and very far home runs. Um, he was a great fielder in center field. Um, he could run and he could throw. He, he, he did not have a weakness. His only weakness was his temper, uh, which sometimes came out too much on the baseball diamond. Uh, but in terms of everything else that was required to make a great baseball player, He's one of the very, very few in the history of the game who was really great. I mean, truly elite at almost everything. His his weakest tool was his arm. He wasn't he wasn't the greatest center field. You know, his was not the greatest center field arm of all time. But everything else was elite, and that's what made him stand out. Uh, that and his incredible competitiveness on the diamond. How big was he? He was about five foot nine, five foot nine and a half, um, and at first weighed maybe 170 180 that became more like 280 by the end of his life he 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 sort of ballooned in his managerial years uh, and in his late playing career as well but he was built like a linebacker he was built um kind of like Mike Trout is today if people know who that is for the for the Angels um very kind of a thickly built man not like Babe Ruth with like a you know a pot belly and and spindly legs he wasn't like that he was just super athletic, thick, strong. Um, he was strong enough that, and this is actually well attested, he could tear the cover off a baseball with his bare hands. Um, that's strong. <laughs> he, uh, players would complain about how rough his hands were and he might rub them on the head, you know, it felt like a brillo pad. Uh, he just, very strong, rough hands. He once got into a, an auto accident where he was driving a car with a wooden steering wheel. And, um, he was very fortunate there were nine players in the car he was driving, uh, and um, they were all okay. But when he emerged from the wreckage, he had pieces of the steering wheel in both of his hands. He had never let go, and he was so strong that the steering wheel gave way
1: before his hands did. So um, he was a yeah, strong,
0: strongly built man.
1: Uh, you say he was handsome, stylish, and in stark contrast to Ty Cobb, charming, gifted with an ability to win over people of all races and stations. He spoke and sang in a fine tenor voice, and he was always well dressed and clean shaven. So, would would people have recognized him if he walked down the street? Oh yes, in an African
0: American community, for sure. And it's it's possible that in certain um, you know it's possible that certain white baseball fans would have recognized him as well. But certainly in the African-American community in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Indianapolis, Chicago, uh, and a lot of other places where his teams would have gone with some regularity because um, his picture was in the paper all the time, in, in the black press. Um, he uh, he was, um, that was one thing I didn't expect when I started researching him because his reputation uh, became, because of an early fight he got into on the diamond, as a hothead, as, a, um, as someone who totally out of control in terms of his temper. And so I didn't think someone like that was likely to be charming. <laughs> I thought it, he comes off in some of the uh, literature as a borderline psychopath, and that's just entirely not true, it turns out. He was really competitive, and that led him to get into fights on the field. He often didn't start them. He did like to finish them, and if a <laughs> fight was in progress, he was happy to join. In fact, he was just a huge boxing fan, a boxing aficionado. Uh, he liked to fight but he was not a bad man and he was not an angry man. He was, he was really charming and that comes through when you really learn about his life. He, people were drawn to him like a magnet, um, very much the opposite of Cobb in that way. You know, Cobb was standoffish and Cobb also probably wasn't the monster he's been made out to be, but uh, certainly uh, significantly less charming and charismatic mm-hmm. than Charleston was. Um, Charleston was able to form friendships with people In sort of higher social stations, including both of his wives uh, that came from prominent families, um, including a a journalist in Cuba who was a a correspondent of W.E.B. Du Bois's and wrote for his magazine Crisis. Um, You know, celebrities, uh, even the owners he played for, uh, he he tended to select college educated men. He He was charming, he was ambitious socially, kind of wanted to rise up himself um, and, was, yeah, charismatic and uh, a character that you wanted to be around.
1: How was he with handling money?
0: Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I, um, he had a house in Pittsburgh and in Philadelphia both. He was a homeowner. Um, I don't know what he had when he, when he died, and I don't know how much tended to stick to him or not. Um, he was hailed by one journalist I think this was in the late 1930s, as having made more money than anybody else in the black game. Um, I suspect that Charleston fed that information to the journalist himself. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And he was always being given gifts and things, as I've mentioned. But, yeah, I don't
1: know. I don't know how he did with money. When you started to reconstruct his life, because you start from, from birth, how much was written about him from, from birth until he emerged as a ball ballplayer? Uh, nothing. Yeah, there, there's nothing in the record
0: on him from birth until he gets to the Philippines. Uh, And we see his voice emerge into the historical record, his his figure emerge into the historical record. Um, There is, however, some information about his family in the Indianapolis newspapers and records of the time, census records, uh, things like that. Uh, And what you are able to discover is that, um, I guess predictably, he was born in poverty. Uh, his parents had uh, come to Indianapolis from Tennessee when he was, just before he was born, uh, in 1896 or thereabouts. Um, he was named Oscar McKinley Charleston after uh, the Republican presidential candidate in 1896, William McKinley, who was running against William Jennings Brime. Uh So that tells you a little bit of something about how aware his parents were. And, and it turns out that his mother becomes very civically active and prominent in a local, uh, regional, sororal organization. Um, You find out that there was a family temper issue. Uh, His mother uh, once greeted a deputy on her doorstep with an ax. Uh, She was taken to court for that and uh, fortunately got off pretty lightly uh, for that. He had at least three of his brothers um, uh, did some time in the the juvenile uh, delinquency system of Indianapolis, so there were Definitely, you know, it wasn't a family where the times were always easy, for sure. And they lived in at least 10 different places uh, as, as a youth, all of which are gone now, thanks to you know, urban renewal and things like that.
1: Were any of his brothers ballplayers?
0: Uh, yes. Uh, at least two of them uh, played uh, professional uh, baseball, not nearly at the level that Oscar did. Uh, Benny and Shedrick. Benny actually played a couple of games with the Homestead Grays. Uh, and I think that's actually one reason why Oscar signed with the Homestead Grays in 1929, uh, 1930, which was a very famous signing at the time, something that was celebrated by the fans of Pittsburgh. Um, I think because Cumberland Posey, who is the um, manager of the team, the owner of the team, uh, was going to give Benny a shot. And so Benny's in spring training with them, but then he's cut before the season starts. And then he has another brother who plays semi-pro ball in Indianapolis, so at least two of them were. And at least one of them was a a really good boxer and he was like a local champion boxer in Indianapolis.
1: Now, th- this program focuses on uh, Pennsylvania and we haven't really right. talked about his Pennsylvania right. connection much, but but he has played quite a bit in uh, Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah, he, he lived the, certainly the majority of his adult life in Pennsylvania from 1924 until he died in 1954. He's His home base, maybe with the exception of one or two years when he's back in Indianapolis, Um, was Pennsylvania. So, yeah, his story is very much a Pennsylvania story.
1: Married a Harrisburg
0: girl. He married a Harrisburg girl. And yes, so that's in 1923. And they moved to Harrisburg in 1924. He's recruited to Harrisburg by a man named Colonel William Struthers, who owned the local uh, black baseball team, the most prominent of them, the Harrisburg Giants. And um, for whatever reason, Struthers had seen an opportunity to try to get into the big time. There was a new league starting called the Eastern Colored League and I'm sure he knew that a local woman uh, who uh, he probably knew the family well, uh, had married Oscar Charleston and so he saw his opportunity. got Oscar to come here. Oscar saw his opportunity to manage a team. He had never managed before. He's only 27 years old, but he really wanted to manage a team. So he comes to Harrisburg in 1924, is the player manager for the Harrisburg Giants, is unbelievably good. His, some of his best years are with Harrisburg, and it's here from 1924 through 1927
1: when uh, Struthers' finances collapsed. You say there was a uh, Harrisburg City Championship game between the uh, Harrisburg, Black Harrisburg mm-hmm. Giants and the White Harrisburg Senators, right. and uh, Oscars team won.
0: Yes, that's an interesting just little story. So this is the sort of thing that happened all the time. These postseason contests, uh, the local, often in a place like Harrisburg, the local minor league team versus the Negro Leagues team. And it wasn't as obvious, I think, to everyone at the time as it is in hindsight that the Negro Leagues team is better. (laughs) You know, (laughs) they're not losing their best talent to a higher level, right? Um, And then the senators made a further mistake in this particular contest you're mentioning where they said, okay, okay, Let's make a rule where we can each bring in any player from our respective leagues. So the Harrisburg team could bring in anybody from their their minor league league. And, and um, anybody from the Eastern Color League could come join Oscar's team. Well, he brings in some t- tremendous players, you know, a couple of Hall of Famers. And uh, yeah, they, they
1: whipped the senators in that contest. So it was a- You say for Oscar, the triumph over the senators was marred by a failure to control his temper. The home plate umpire rung him up and called on a third strike call. Enraged, Oscar turned and took a swing at the ump. He missed, but the umpire didn't, landing a counterpunch squarely (laughs) to Charleston's jaw. So the umps hit back. The um, the umps hit back. (laughs) (laughs) There
0: was no one really to protect. You had to protect yourself. Yes, that's one of of the lower points for Oscar, um, because he didn't do that very much. Start a fight, and especially start a fight with an umpire. Um, and that umpire and obviously lose. acquitted himself <laughs> well and lose exactly and what's interesting and tells you everything about those times that was a doubleheader I think or at least the next day's game Oscar's playing so there was no suspension you know he's out of that game you're ejected but there's nothing after that so um, that just tells you sort of how it wasn't all that uncommon in fact I think it was earlier that year a couple of players for the New York Cubans started basically a brawl here in Harrisburg uh, by baiting umpires, throwing stones and dirt at them and and threatening them. And so, um, yeah, unfortunately, that
1: sort of thing just wasn't uncommon. Oscar, late in his career, actually was an umpire for for a year or so. Yeah, a couple of years, I think. What would have possessed him to be an umpire (laughs) after all he had seen?
0: I think, no kidding. Well, it was a little bit different by then. So now we're talking 1946, 1947, Mm -hmm. a little bit more of a refined game to Mm -hmm. some extent. And... Uh, He wanted to stay in the game. That was a time in his life when that was his only opportunity. Uh, Now, um, in 1948, the Philadelphia Stars come calling again, and he again manages the Philadelphia Stars. That's the leading um, black baseball team in Philadelphia at the time. But yeah, in those two years, right after the war, and right after really kind of his crowning moment, um, doing scouting for Branch Rickey, uh, although it wasn't noticed as that at the time, yeah, I think that was just his way to stay in the game. And apparently he was a calm umpire and certainly one who had no trouble controlling mm-hmm. the players and managers on
1: the field. W- did he ever in the off season uh, or or uh, black teams uh, barnstorm through the south? They did. Yes, all the time. It was a
0: favorite spring training thing to do. So um, could, the weather was better, obviously. So you could really get in shape and get games in and you could make some money. Um, he started doing that... Um, gosh, it, it, certainly by the early 1920s, it was a common thing and through the early 1930s, mid 1930s really, um, with various teams. And what teams would do is they would barnstorm, get, get in a bus, later on, you know, it was a bus, not a train, and, and go through all sorts of communities in the South from, from Memphis and Birmingham and New Orleans to little towns in Texas. They almost never had anybody come through. And in the South, you were playing against black teams. You, you weren't allowed to play uh, white teams. Well well, at least while Oscar was playing. Um, but there might be fans of both races uh, in the stands. Uh, in fact, there certainly were, because uh, black players uh, certainly remember the sort of abuse uh, they would take in the stands, not only in the South, um, from from white fans. Uh, but but what was worse was just trying to figure out where to stay, uh, Who where could you be served, you know, especially late nights after games or early mornings, in the middle of the night, whatever it might be, uh, police traps, you know, laying in wait, uh, you know, to to needing a bribe to let you out of the county, all sorts of stories like that. Um, It wasn't easy often, barnstorming through the South. Um, And and the accommodations in particular were often terrible. (laughs) Players remember sleeping on chairs rather than the uh, lice and bed bug infested beds oftentimes. Um, So it definitely wasn't easy, but it was a way to to play baseball in February and March and to get in shape, and, and to make some money. And um, yeah, they all did it. They all did it.
1: Can you talk a little b- bit about two teams that you mentioned, both from Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh Crawfords and the Homestead Grays, mm-hmm. and why Pittsburgh happened to attract those all those great players? Uh,
0: yeah, I think
1: that's a great question.
0: Um, obviously, Pittsburgh was a, a, a large and, and dynamic city at the time in the 19-teens, uh, 1920s, 1930s. Um, but it just had a lot to do with the two men who were responsible for those teams. And that's often how it worked in the Negro Leagues. Where did you have somebody with the, the dynamism and energy to do this? Um, Cumberland Posey, uh, the owner-manager of the Grays, came from a very prominent black Pittsburgh family. His father owned uh, the largest um, black-owned company in Pittsburgh. I think it was called Diamond, Coke, and Coal or something like that. Uh, and so he came... Uh, he had some money, actually, and he had background, and um, I think much to his father's chagrin, went into baseball, <laughs> which was not considered a, a very highly uh, acceptable social uh, occupation. But he was the driving force behind the greys, uh, and so it was really just the force of his personality and his ability to attract players and make them believe uh, that you could do this here. They could, you know, owners had to make players believe, they, first of all, they get paid <laughs> right, mm-hmm. and on time. And Posey was able to do that. Um, And he was very intelligent and college educated. He he was just a really good administrator. And then um, it was the force of personality of Gus Greenlee with the Crawfords. He um, had been sponsoring what was just like a local, like a sandlot team called the Crawford Giants uh, from the mid-1920s. It was started as a team associated with like a bathhouse in the, um, the Hill District of Pittsburgh where the... The principal African-American community in Pittsburgh uh, was located. Um, but somehow he got the idea around 1930-31 that he wanted to make the Crawfords um, a real deal major league team. And again, it was just if you had the money, um, you could do it. And he ended up starting his own league, actually. Greenley did because of the Depression. Nobody else could really do that. I was able to steal a lot of players from Posey's Homestead Grays, including Oscar Charleston and Josh Gibson. And Greenley brought in a a young man named Satchel Paige, whom he had found in Cleveland. So why Pittsburgh? I don't think there was necessarily anything special about Pittsburgh, except that it was a large city with a large African-American community. Uh, those are necessary things. Uh, and, but other than that, it was just having the luck, having
1: two men with the sort of energy of those guys. Can you talk a little more about the teammates that uh, that Oscar would have had on those? You mentioned Satchel Paige, who actually yeah. made it to the major leagues right. at,
0: at one point. right. Well, in Pittsburgh in particular, he was blessed with um, tremendous teammates. Uh, A number of uh, baseball historians think that the Crawfords teams of the early 1930s were some of the best teams ever assembled, at least in terms of the overall talent level on the team when those players were in their prime. So uh, on on the Crawfords, a team that Oscar managed and had really helped put together, because Greenlee wasn't necessarily a baseball man, the first first person he selected for his new Crawfords team in 1932 was Oscar Charleston as his player manager. Um, but Satchel Paige was on that team. He, he, he came with with the team. Uh, Charleston uh, convinced Gibson to come over from the Grays. So these are two of the greatest play- Those three players are easily top 20 players of all time, so this gives you some sense of how good this team must have been. And then there were others. Uh, cool Papa Bell, who was this fast fleet center fielder with a great nickname, one of the greatest nicknames <laughs> that the game has seen, was in center field. And um, Judy Johnson, a, a Wilmington, Delaware native uh, who had played in Philadelphia uh, for a while with Oscar, was the team's third baseman. And then uh, Judd Wilson, I think, was on that team too later. All of those players are in the Hall of Fame today. So, those would be some of his more famous teammates in Pittsburgh. Those were tremendous teams. Um, The Grays were also tremendous teams as well when Oscar was with them for a couple of years. But um, they weren't always together. Page had a disquieting habit of jumping his contract and going wherever he wanted to go, uh, including at one point to North Dakota where he played for a white auto dealers team out in the plains and made good money doing it. So that was, Page was never, Page was Charleston's other than Gibson his best teammate, and the hardest teammate, I think, for him to handle. I don't think two men could have much more diametrically opposed personalities than Oscar Charleston and Satchel Paige.
1: How widely did those teams travel when they were at their peak around the country?
0: Basically all over. Mm -hmm. Uh, All over uh, the East and the South and the Midwest, and occasionally forays into the Plains. Um, The league itself Say take the Gus Greenlee Negro National League of the 1930s, stretched from, Pittsburgh was, I believe, sort of the westernmost point in the team, that it stretched eastward. So you would play east in your league games. Um, and then you would barnstorm in the south during spring as a spring training, basically. And then after the season, you often would go, and sometimes in the, during the season, uh, tours to the Midwest and what was said to be the west, which would be like Iowa, and Missouri and places like that, and um, maybe Texas. So pretty much everywhere they could get a game. Um, that was the key, getting at least a game a day, preferably two games a day, everywhere you went.
1: What was sports writing like? As you were digging through the, the old microfilms of, uh, of the newspapers, what was it like to read a, the <laughs> accounts of those games?
0: Well, it, yeah, it was certainly an era in which um, Never use a two-syllable word when a five-syllable word <laughs> will do. Uh, it was a florid style at the time. Um, it was uh, in the uh, it, it, there was a lot of like this happened, this happened, this happened. Of course, because nobody had seen the game, so you really had to tell them exactly what happened. Um, in the it, what was interesting about the sports writing, I would say, is the sort of growing recognition. Uh, an insight among the writers themselves that the black baseball players they were watching and covering were in fact every bit as good as the white baseball players in the major leagues. Um, There's certainly a sense at the beginning that they're not sure. Maybe we're not as good. And the players themselves, uh, when you read uh, interviews uh, from like the 60s, 70s, 80s, like they weren't sure if they were as good. Um, you know, they weren't, they didn't receive the same training as, uh, that they at least imagined that the white players had received. They didn't think they had the same, you know, coaching available to them. And of course their lives were harder in any number of ways, um, especially when they were on the road. They didn't have the same facilities. So, but there's a growing recognition and then kind of a growing frustration and then eventually anger about this, right, about, about the color line in baseball. Um, So that's, I guess, an arc I saw, through the sports writing of the period. Um, if, in the teens, there's some sunny prophecies. That, like, this is just around the corner. It won't be long until players like Oscar Charleston are playing against white players. And, and that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Um, the frustration really builds. And, and by the time you're into the 1930s, there's an edge to the sports writing uh, in covering black baseball when it, when it comes to the race issue and integration. Like, this, this, has, to, this has to
1: end how long did he uh, manage? I mean, was he a player manager the whole time he managed?
0: Almost always. Uh, So for the Harrisburg Giants, he was uh, for one of the two years when he's this, a team called Hilldale, which played in the Philadelphia suburb of Darby. He's a player manager. He's not for the Homestead Grays because Posey is the uh, manager of that team. But that's one reason why he goes to the Crawfords. And then after he does that, he is always the manager after that. Um, The Crawfords, In fact, they they kind of fall apart. Greenlee has to sell the team in 1939. But an interesting thing happens. Um, A a group of investors from Ohio buys the team for a a pittance. And one of their members is Jesse Owens, who is just three years, uh, three or four years away from having won gold in Berlin. Uh, He's very famous. Uh, But he hasn't been able to really capitalize on his fame. Um, He's, in fact, by the time he puts down a few dollars to help buy the Crawfords, uh, he's, he has a lien against him, you know, from the IRS and he's really kind of in tough shape. So he joins the Crawfords and he and Oscar Charleston and this team barnstorm all around the country, uh, with Owens. Uh, They don't really have a home, much of one. They're called the Toledo Crawfords. They're almost never in Toledo. Um, and Owens races, uh, men and motorcycles and horses. Uh, between doubleheaders or after a game, or he gives clinics to children on racing. Um, It's really crazy to think (laughs) that that happened, you know, just a few years after he won gold in Berlin, and and he didn't, he preferred not to. You uh, said he absolutely uh, hated it. He (laughs) hated it. At least that's what he said later. Uh, He has two memoirs, Owens, and he has nothing good to say about that period. He doesn't mention any of the players by name that he was with, uh, including Oscar, even though um, it's clear they became kind of friends. They, they reconnect years later at a baseball game, um, but he, he hated it. And, of course, when you look back with hindsight in the 1960s and 70s, it was certainly not a very dignified way to have had to make a buck. Um, uh, I did find that there were white um, uh, Olympic medalists who also were racing people and horses and motorcycles between games, so it wasn't entirely a racial thing, although I'm sure that played, played a role in it. Um, but, yeah, Owens, Owens hated it, and nobody ever talks
1: about it in connection with his life, but for two years he did that with Charleston. Did you ever come across any interviews with Oscar Charleston where a reporter sat down and did a pretty lengthy interview? Unbelievably, but no. <laughs> That's one of the, yeah. Um, he,
0: there are some quotes, of course, from reporters, and there are columns where it's clear they're about Oscar, where it's clear he's been feeding information to the columnist, but there is no lengthy interview with him there's no audio that I was able to find. Uh, there's no video I was able to find. Um, maybe Ken Burns will emerge and show me he has something on Oscar, but he doesn't have anything on him in his uh, series other than still photos. So, I, yeah, maybe it's in a basement or attic somewhere, but there's no audio or video, and there are no lengthy interviews with him. So. Did you
1: ever want to throw up your hands and say, there just isn't enough written down about this guy?
0: Well, um, no, surprisingly, there there was enough, and Thank God I, you would not have been able to do this biography, I don't think, even 10, 15 years ago because it really depended on all these newspapers being digitized. Like It was only because I could search through hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of newspapers you know, at once that I was able to piece together, oh, they were in Joplin in July 7, 1948, and now they're in Oklahoma City or St. Louis or something. You could follow where things went and you can pick up tidbits about him and the team and the context of the times it all those stops you know that's how I know Jesse Owens you know raced a motorcycle in Louisville Kentucky you know because I was able to search a digitized newspaper in Louisville that I never would have been able to do or even thought to do in the in the era of you know microfiche maybe so um I didn't want to throw actually no I ended up with plenty of material I was really blessed um what I did want to throw up my hands was I got started too late to talk to ex-Negro League's players who had known Oscar. Um, I was able to speak with about five or six of them, everybody I could find who had, who had known him or just shaken his hand. There are not too many of these, these men and women left. Um, but I was really blessed. There was a writer named John Schulian, who was the, uh, a Sports Illustrated writer and also, oddly, the co-creator of Xena Warrior Princess, uh, John Julian did a great article on Oscar Charleston for Sports Illustrated in the early 2000s. And he uh, had been able to interview a number of ex-Negro League players about Oscar, kept all of his notes. and when I, when I contacted him, he generously shipped over boxes of notes and transcriptions of interviews. So I was essentially able to talk to players at length through, through John. And that provided a lot of useful context in getting to know Oscar's personality, what he was like, uh, what he looked like, you know, how he acted, and that kind of thing.
1: How long did this all take?
0: Uh, it 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 was um it was a good five year process. Mm-hmm. I mean, the writing took two or three years, and I was easily working on the research for, and including just getting to understand the Negro Leagues as well as I could for several years before that.
1: You mentioned that Oscar Charleston was involved in the integration of the major leagues. How yeah. did that happen?
0: Yeah. It, yeah, it was it was weird. Uh, and but it's really one of the most fascinating things about him so in 1945 um, oscar has just got he's still working i believe at the time at a place called the quartermaster depot which is in south philadelphia and which made clothing and flags and things like that for the army uh, during the war and this is his wartime work and the depot has a baseball team like every company had a baseball team in that in that era and Oscar is named its manager, and interestingly enough, that's an integrated team. So he's the manager of an integrated baseball team in Philadelphia in 1942, 43, 44. Um, gosh, I don't know. Is any, was any other African American uh, manager of a, even a semi-pro integrated team before Oscar? I don't know. Was he still playing at that point? Uh, he would. He would play for that team. Mm-hmm. Yes, he wasn't playing professionally in the Negro Leagues. Yeah, he was quite old. He'd be 46 or so years old, but he could still hit. He couldn't run, Mm -hmm. but he could hit. Um, But he gets um, a call. Gus Greenlee is reforming a new black baseball league called the United States League, and uh, it turns out it's going to have a team in Brooklyn uh, because uh, Branch Rickey has decided he wants to be involved because he has a problem. Branch Rickey uh, is trying to find players to sign for the Dodgers, uh, black players. He doesn't want anybody else to know. He wants to get an edge on the competition. But if he sends scouts to a Negro Leagues game, that really tips everybody off. (laughs) They stand out. So um, his solution is to house a team at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn called the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers. And he brings up Oscar Charleston from Philadelphia to manage that team, but really to do scouting for him. Uh, Clyde Sukforth is his lead scout, and he tells the sporting news just a few years later and then in later interviews as well that the Dodgers used Charleston to scout players. That was his role. Um, he um, could get into places they couldn't get into, He, of course he knew most of these players or their managers. He's been in the game forever, so he knows everything about everybody. Had lots of relationships that he could um, call on to find out whatever needed to be found out. So. It was on his recommendation that the Dodgers signed Roy Campanella, who is a catcher who went on to have a Hall of Fame career for them. Um, the, uh, Ricky thought maybe Campanella was too old, was lying about his age, and he was really, very picky. He didn't want anybody who didn't live an exemplary life, and um, Campanella did, and, and Oscar was able to tell him that. So yeah, he scouted for Ricky uh, Campanella, among others, um, he provided background information about. And as I said, I think that makes him the first African American to be paid to scout for a National League or an American League Mm -hmm. team. Later on, uh, the myth starts that he uh, recommended Jackie Robinson to Ricky. Um, That's not true. The Dodgers didn't need Charleston to tell them about Robinson. Everybody in America knew about Robinson. He was a three-sport star at UCLA and just was famous for his collegiate uh, sports activities. But... um, It was interesting, as I write in the book, you know, it's fitting that Charleston would be, that that myth would start, because I think it was thought by a lot of the older time uh, black players that someone like Charleston should have been the one to find Jackie, you know, and, 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 you know, sort of shepherd him in uh, to the major leagues. Like that would be the passing of the baton. That would make sense. Um, Didn't quite happen that way, but he was involved with the Dodgers.
1: You, you say that uh, at the tail end of the Negro Leagues, he managed a team called the Indianapolis Clowns, yeah. and they had women on the team?
0: Yes. So we're into the um, twilight years of the Negro Leagues when this happens. This is 1954. There's still some talent in, in the leagues, but not nearly as much as there had been. Uh, players are starting to go directly to the majors uh, without passing through the Negro Leagues first. And um, fans are going with them. So there's a, a man named Sid Pollock who's been active in the Negro leagues for some time, and he's the owner of this team called the Indianapolis Clowns. Um, and uh, they're not really based in Indianapolis, <laughs> but that, that's how they—that's their name. And he—he um, he brings on Oscar to manage his team, and one of his his um, gambits to draw uh, fans. Is to include women on the team. He had had a woman on the team in 1953 named Tony Stone. Uh, she had acquitted herself quite well. She was a big gate draw, but then now she wanted too much money, and Sid Pollock was nothing if not cheap. So he let Tony Stone go to the Kansas City Monarchs. He brought on two players named Connie uh, Connie Morgan and uh, Mamie Johnson uh, to play with the clowns in 1954, and it was Oscar's job to mentor them, uh, to protect them on the road. Um, uh, from From whatever uh dangers they might encounter it wasn 't clear how the how the male players were going to react to all of this and um and still to win games uh, and they were really good players they were surely two of the greatest uh female baseball players on earth um they didn 't play all nine innings usually because there were other players on the team and um and they weren't great hitters they were really great fielders, and Mamie Johnson was actually a quite a good pitcher but yeah uh that's just yet another weird story in Oscar's life is managing a team with two women on it, um, the only team with two women on it, certainly in Negro League's history, um, uh, in 1954.
1: Uh, what number book is this for you?
0: Uh, it's like th- my third book, I think.
1: Are any of them other similar? No,
0: they're completely different. <laughs> <laughs> there's, uh, my, my professional field is philanthropy, so there's a, a, a history of American charity is one and a, and a fundraising book is the other. So this is the first uh, baseball book. Did
1: you catch the bug on writing baseball books? We'll
0: see. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I would love to write another one. There are, especially in the Negro Leagues, there are just so many more good stories to be told. A lot more biographies of players who have been
1: unjustly forgotten that need to be written. We have been speaking with Jeremy Beer. He is the author of this book, Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books,
0: a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the
1: PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.